0: Today we come to the next to last message in the book of James. Our plans are that next week Tom Piper will finish us out as he looks at, leads us through the final eight verses. We're going to look at the final verses in chapter 4 today and the first verses in chapter 5, but before we do, we need a bit of Background. So much background that we have to go all the way back to the very first verse in the book. It reads this way, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The twelve tribes were the Jewish people. And he's writing specifically to people who had been Jewish, raised Jewish, and at some point had come to accept Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior. Dispersion means a scattering. It was the word used for how they would plant their fields. They would just take a handful of seeds and throw them out. Well, what's that got to do with people? We can see that from Acts chapter 8. If you have your Bible with you, what has happened just prior to Acts 8 is that one of the Early church deacons had given a tremendous sermon, but it had not made the Jewish leaders happy at all. In fact, it made them so mad that they trumped up some charges and had him killed, had him stoned to death. Then we begin Acts chapter 8, and it says, And Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, but at this point he was Saul, the Jewish leader, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered or dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. What a strong word. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Again, what he later on became a believer and that was fantastic. But Paul was always a zealous guy. This time, zealous against the Christians. And as it said, because of all this persecution, they had to spread out. Uh, They had to go into, they were in Judea, the bottom province or kind of like a county or region. They were in Jerusalem, the capital of that. They got kicked out of Jerusalem into the extremes of that region. Samaria is in the middle, and then Galilee in the northern part of Israel. Before long, people got scattered not simply all throughout Israel, but throughout what would be today modern-day Jordan, and in fact, as far east as Iran, as far west as Italy. They were scattered everywhere. Nevertheless, James is writing to them because he knows they have some needs. By the way, this dispersing that took place under Paul and others took place about a year after Jesus' death and resurrection. Just one year. So this is about 34 A.D., when this occurs in Acts 8. Ten years later, there was another dispersion. It was even worse, and people again had to flee from their homes, from their possessions, and just start all over. As if that's not enough, there was a famine in Israel during this time that lasted some 20 years. So, as you can imagine, this was a terrible time for these new Christians. Just recall, Paul's persecution occurred just one year after Jesus' death. So a lot of these people were Christians only one year before they had to leave and do a lot of things on their own, such as find a new place to live, a new job. These scattered Christians were lifelong Jews, but brand new Christians, they were spiritually immature. You know, they didn't have Bibles back then. They didn't have anything like we have today with the internet, plus books, podcasts, uh, Christian music. Just about everything we have, they didn't have. How? What would James say to try to encourage these believers? They were also oppressed. Having been forced out of their land, they... They sometimes tried to use the court systems to get it back, but the court system didn't work for them because they were poor. They didn't have enough money to bribe the officials, whereas the rich people did. Lastly, they were economically poor. That makes sense because they had to leave everything and start over. But I want to point out briefly just four financially distinct or economically distinct groups of people that James was writing to and writing about. I start with those in the worst financial position. We can call them the severely poor, dirt poor. This would include people like widows, orphans, who really could not work and earn a living for themselves. That's why James says in the last verse of chapter 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The elderly and the disabled would fit into that category as well. James talks about these people in James chapter 2, verse, beginning with verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister, a fellow believer, is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. That's these people who were worst off. So if that's the case, and one of you says to them, "Ah, go in peace, be warmed, even though their clothes wouldn't keep them warm, and be filled, even though they had no food. You say, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So there were the extremely poor. Number two, there were the working poor, the laboring poor, and this was the largest group by far in James's audience, or the people James was writing to. These people would be day laborers, working in the fields of the rich. The rich were vast holders, or holders of vast amounts of land, that needed a lot of human uh, manpower to sow, and then later on to reap. So they were in this this category. They weren't dirt poor, but they really weren't getting ahead either. And just as a reminder, at this point in time, in this place in the world, people, by and large, they didn't have any retirement. They didn't have savings. There were no charities who could come along and help. Uh, No government either to help out. Now, maybe that's a good thing. But thirdly, not only were there very poor and the working poor, a third group were the merchants. They're the ones who are going to be addressed in our first passage today at the end of chapter 4. James tells them that they tended to be overconfident in making their plans and in their ability to buy and sell and make a profit. And he's going to tell them why. Fourthly, lastly, there were the rich. The rich were wealthy landholders. We will look at the rich in chapter 5, the first six verses. These people were also the ones persecuting the poor Christians and the dirt poor Christians I just mentioned. Most of these landholders, if not all of them, were unbelievers. The first three groups were Christians. This last group, no. James addresses the rich also in chapter 2. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, that would be the rich, and only the rich, comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, You, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You, stand over there, Or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? On the one hand, though, we can understand that, can't we? I mean, if they hoped that the rich would ever do them a favor, it makes sense that they would try to do the rich a favor. And maybe outside of their worship time, that might be appropriate, but not in worship. James is saying everybody's equal before God. And if you treat the wealthy special and you treat the poor like dirt, then you are doing very much, you're very much doing wrong, even you're doing evil. All throughout the book of James, we've been learning that it's not the circumstances, but it's the godly response to those circumstances that produces a godly character in us. And that's ultimately why James wrote the book, to help people grow in their Christian faith, to help them become more like Jesus Christ. What is that godly response that we should be striving for? Dennis told us, uh, showed us a couple weeks ago in chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 10, three verses, the words, Humble. Or submit, submission, appear. Our goal, our purpose is to humbly submit ourselves to God and to His priorities in our lives. Humbly submit to God. Because me first living is really a type of practical atheism. Yes, Christians, we can act like atheists. If we ignore God, then for all intents and purposes, at that moment in time and in those actions, we are acting just like an atheist would act. So I've titled this, The Foolishness of Me First Living. I'd like to turn your attention now to verse, chapter 4, verse 13. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Going right into chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Wow, that's strong. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. The foolishness of me first living, first of all, shows itself in the foolishness of self reliant living. Self reliant living is foolishness because it reveals that we have the wrong perspective on life. James had said, uh, pointed out that these merchants were saying, and let me reread it this time the way it more so appears in the Greek. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and in such a town and we will spend a year there and we will trade and we will make a profit. They had fantastic plans and the Bible is all for planning. That's not the issue at all. What was the issue was they were leaving God out of their plans. They weren't considering Him. They weren't pardon the phrase, factoring him in to their equation at all. These merchants were essentially traveling salespeople, usually entrepreneurs, uh, self-employed business people. They would take whatever they made or, or dye clothes they may have dyed or whatever. They'd travel around to sell those. And then once they were out selling, they would also buy some stuff there in hopes that they could sell it back to there are people back home. And once again, I want to emphasize the Bible is not against planting. In fact, the Proverbs 31 lady is a planter woman. She, we're told just in one verse, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She considers a field. She looks at it because she knows if she's going to sow it and get what she wants out of it, she's got to plan. Got to make sure the field is large enough. Maybe make sure she has enough people to help. Again, the Bible is all for planning. Even God makes plans. Many of you know Jeremiah 29, 11, where the Lord says, For I know the plans I have for you. Again, planning is right. Leaving God out of our plans is wrong. And he tells us one reason why. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Again, plan for tomorrow, but he's saying, factor God in. Let God be um, in foremost in your mind, in your thoughts. James says that, what are our lives? Our lives are like a mist. Or like smoke rising from a fire. You see it for a little while, and then you don't see it again. So the first and most important step of godly planning, and of course of godly living, is to start by getting rid of the wrong perspective. That being that we think we are in charge of the future, or even of the present. Because we're not. We're not. And that's why we need to have the right perspective on life. The right perspective is that I submit my life, my plans, my goals, my everything to His will. Verse 15 says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Notice He said, if the Lord wills, we will live. He's trying to help them realize even their day-to-day life and existence is ultimately decided by God, not by them. So when we make our plans, we need to make them with a conscious, willful submission to God. In fact, humbly submitting ourselves to God is really the theme of the entire book. But I want to point this out. C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And that's good because there's kind of a worm theology that some people have out there. Oh, I'm no good. I'm just a worm. And God is certainly all great, but I'm just nothing. No, we're made in the image of God, as Courtney pointed out earlier. We're not worms. But we do need to recognize who is in charge and who. Is not so. We ought to preface all of our plans with the idea if the Lord wills. It doesn't mean that we have to say those words all the time, every time, but at least we need to be thinking them. The Apostle Paul, for example, he did use those words, but only some of the time. In Acts 18, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail for Ephesus. And in Romans one he says, "I've been praying, asking the Lord, that somehow by God's will I may now at least excuse me at last succeed in coming to you. but the same book, chapter fifteen of Romans, he says, When therefore I have completed this this all this task, I will leave for Spain by way of you. He doesn't put those words in if the Lord wills, but we know that Paul had that in his mind, and because he gave us that as an example. So, once again, you don't have to say it every time, and by all means, don't just say the words. The words carry no inherent ability, power in and of themselves, but by saying the words, thinking the words, it does help us remember to, as we think of our days, as we plan through our days, that we realize. God may want to change our plans. And we have to be okay with that. So, Thirdly, the problem with living self-reliantly is that it shows I'm arrogant and boasting about things that I cannot control and things I don't even realize that I cannot control. As he says in verse 16, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting... Is evil. James, he didn't play around. He didn't say, oh, um, you know, that's just a small mistake. No, he said, not in considering God from the beginning and as well as in the middle and all throughout, that's evil because it's boasting and it's arrogance. Alex Haley, the author of Roots, and you may know some of you, especially my age, you can't help but remember, he was uh, an African-American who wrote a book about his life and his roots in Africa, and it, it was just a blockbuster. It, he made the movie, there were books, there were speaking engagements, it, it was just kind of life-altering for a lot of people. He used to keep a picture in his office that showed a turtle sitting on top of a fence, He said that picture was there to remind him of a lesson he learned but still needed to review all the time, which was, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he had some help. And Alex said, anytime I start thinking, wow, isn't all this marvelous what I have done? He says, I look at that picture, and I remember how this turtle, like me, Got up on that post. It did not happen by itself. And he acknowledged that God was at work on his behalf. The fourth, the solution to self-reliance is to be God-reliant. Christians should know not to try to live independently of God. That's what verse 17 says. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Because verse 17 follows 16. So the, the context is about their presuming in their plans. They know not to do that. They're familiar with Proverbs 27:1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. In Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O Lord. What a great prayer for us to start today with. Lord, I want to delight in doing your will today. But if at any place I'm not so delighting in it, please work in my heart. Change me so that I do delight in knowing you and obeying you and doing your will. Now we're going to look at the foolishness of self-centered living. And those are in James 5, the first six verses. I mentioned before, James now is addressing the rich. These rich are unbelievers. However, there's a little wrinkle to the story that's important for us to know. But if you look at chapter 4, verse 13 of James and chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see they start the same way. Come now. That was kind of like, I won't do it, but kind of like a speaker slamming on the pulpit. Uh, In fact, this interjection was only used in two places in the New Testament, right here. It is a very, very strong way of James saying, hold on, everybody stop. Pay attention. This is important. It was important what he said to the Christian merchants in chapter 4. It's also important what he's going to say, even to the unbelieving rich, in chapter 5. And you might ask, well, if these are believers, excuse me, if these are unbelievers, why is James saying anything to them? Why is he addressing them in a letter that's sent to believers? Well, Because what he's doing, and I don't have time to establish this for you, but what he's doing is he's acting like a prophet in the Old Testament. Many of the prophets certainly sent their books to their people, to the people of Israel and Judah. But several of them also take time to say, Assyria, you've treated my people Israel badly. There's going to come a day when you will pay for it. Syria, the same. Uh, Egypt, Moab, Edom. All of these people, all these places are addressed in the Old Testament prophets, even though they may have never read them, may never read them in their lifetime. So James, by doing it this way, what he's really doing is not only passing along an honest um, message of impending judgment, but he's also encouraging his people. People who, again, very poor, struggling every day, um, They've been kicked out of their land. They've lost their house. They may have lost family. They may still have relatives in prison back in Jerusalem. And he's trying to encourage them that although you guys have it bad, and you do, there will come a day when God will uh, balance the scales, when God will make everything fair and right. James says in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. One of the reasons that those miseries are coming upon them, James doesn't exactly spell out, but knowing the, the history, we can figure it out on our own. See, what they were not doing was they were not helping the poor, probably at all. You see, God has always had a plan for how the poor would be provided for. The primary way, by far, is by their own family, extended family. Now, that may not work as well for us because our families tend to be spread out. Their families were more like the Amish, they lived very closely together. The second Method the net, if you will, underneath the family. If the family couldn't or wouldn't support their needing, was the rich. The rich were always supposed to give something to the poor. In fact, that's why you're reading the Gospels and you see people uh, like the lame, the deaf, blind lining the road to the temple. Reason being was that as people came into the toward the temple to worship, especially the rich, they anticipated that the rich would help them out a little bit financially because they honestly could not help themselves. But And everyone in this, all the Jews knew this as God's plan. In fact, even people who were not Jews in that Roman Empire place in the world, part of the world, they knew that First it's family, but then the rich have an obligation to help the poor. However, there were no records kept. There was no accountability. And so the rich, a lot of times, would just keep it all to themselves. And that's why, because they've ignored the poor, James says in verse 2 that your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be like evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. James says, you have great wealth, but it's not going to last. And when you stand before God, it's not going to help you at all. God will instead be holding you accountable for the fact that you didn't help the poor. By the way, James speaks here in the past tense, even though maybe that process was just now taking place. But he could speak of it in the past tense because it was so certain to happen that he could write about it as if it had already happened. And he's, think of it this way if you spent $100,000 on a brand new car, drive it off the you or Smiling and happy, but what if the next day you get a letter from the company and they say, now this won't happen, so I'm making it up, but they say, there's a flaw in our cars, they will at some point stop and never run again, they're not repairable, and so sometime in the next five years, your car is going to die on you. Well, if you got a letter like that after buying a a $100,000 car, would your car still in your mind be worth $100,000? No. You'd begin to see that car is was just a waste of of your time and money because that car is could strand you tomorrow. Well, in a similar sense, that's what James is saying that they have even though this rotting and um, corrosion have not started very much, it is so certain to happen that even though that money, say that silver bar is still worth the same that it was the day before, nevertheless, when you really look at it, that silver bar isn't really worth much at all because it can't do you any good. Jesus said the very similar thing in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that one verse really describes the rich at this time. Their treasure was in their own possessions. Their heart was there. They consequently did not have a heart for God, did not even have a heart for their fellow man. Number three, the rich have misspent, misspent both their lives and their wealth instead of using it for good. I've already pretty much made that point. But how have they misspent their lives and their wealth? Primarily by hoarding it, by making it and then keeping it. Verse 4, though, adds this. They also haven't paid their workers accurately and adequately. What could happen easily was people would work in a field all day, get ready to be paid because they paid them every day because there was no guarantee there'd be work for them tomorrow. By the time it came to pay them, the rich would say, oh, no, I didn't tell you I'd pay you $20 an hour. I said I'd pay you 12 Well, what could the poor do? They were stuck. And yet James says this was a way that you rich are stealing from your, your um, fellow, fellow uh, friends and, and those who live around you. They've hoarded their wealth. They haven't paid their workers fairly. Number five, verse five, they spent their money on themselves. They lived in luxury and in indulgence, even though the poor around them were going without food. Verse five, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And that is bitterly ironic because you fatten a cow, a calf, a sheep, whatever it may be, before you would slaughter it for food. James is making that same kind of picture, but now he's saying you guys are going to be the ones slaughtered. You've fattened not your belly necessarily, but your heart with so much pride and so much, so, such an unwillingness to be generous that you're only setting yourselves up for judgment. And then verse 6, he says, You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Likely what James is talking about here is in the court system. As I mentioned before, the wealthy could pay bribes to the courts. The the poor could not. And then what Mark preached on last week, I'll just highlight verses 7 and 8. What's... Our response to be, or what was to be the response of those Christian, Jewish Christians, young in their faith, oppressed and poor, and being mistreated by the rich, their response was to patiently endure. Patiently endure that unjust treatment until Christ returns with the confidence that even though it is tough to hang in there today, Christ will return and one day he will make everything right and in heaven you won't look back on what you didn't have. You'll be thrilled at God's grace in allowing you to be there. So let me just close with this. Are you, are you going through life just kind of practically ignoring, forgetting about God? Okay, Yeah, you come here Sunday mornings and that's the God time but the rest of the week, yours, if you're doing that, God James says don't do that because that's arrogance. You don't really know what you're doing. Instead, we need to be consciously, continually submitting ourselves to God, not just throughout the week, but even throughout a day. I had a little quote up here from C.T. Studd. He was a missionary, a British missionary in India and Africa. And he wrote a larger poem. I've just included one stanza of it. He says, only one life and the still small voice, speaking of God's voice, gently pleads for me to make a better choice. He bids me, he invites my selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. There's only, all of us have only one life. Before we know it, it will soon be past. And only our obedience for Christ, only the things that He has told us in His will to do and that we have done, only what's done for Christ will last. I want to call the elders and wives to come forward. If you would like to have some prayer with either the men or the women, uh, you're welcome to come up at the end of the service and pray with them or have them pray for you. Uh, at this point, I'm going to pray, and at the end of my prayer, our service will be dismissed. Would you pray? My Father, it is a good reminder of the things we've heard today, and I think we would all confess it is easy to be, get caught up in all the, the hassles and stresses of a week. And not really think about you as often as we should. So God, I pray that you would remind us and help us to consider you first and foremost. And to be willing to plan, but yet willing to let you change our plans. God, complete this message in our minds and our hearts and our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.